Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hales. In early January, I sat down with Jane Clayson Johnson, a former news correspondent for CBS and ABC News, to discuss her research on mental illness. Over the course of three years, Jane recorded hundreds of interviews with Latter-day Saints about their experiences. Her book, Silent Souls Weeping, contains frank discussions aimed at breaking down the stigma associated with depression and providing ministering tools. Join us for Jane Clayson Johnson's perspective on mental illness. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Jane, thanks for joining us today. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. Our discussion today is based on your new book, Silent Souls Weeping, Depression, Sharing Stories, and Finding Hope. What was your goal in writing Silent Souls Weeping? I wrote this book after my own unexpected and quite harrowing experience with depression. And after I had experience that and come out of it, I started talking with other people about what had happened to me. And I started to realize how many people had experienced the same thing or something similar. And they had suffered in silence like I had. I just couldn't get over how damaging that was for their families, for themselves. I knew how damaging and and difficult it was for my own family and certainly for me. So I wanted to do something about it. And I um, started not just talking with people, I asked to interview them. As it turned out, at the end of my interviews, I had interviewed more than 150 men, women, and teenagers about their experiences with depression. That's what this book uh, includes and entails. Um, What I wanted to do was start a conversation with members of the church who feel like they can't openly discuss their experiences with mental illness, with depression, because they're embarrassed, they feel ashamed, they feel like because their faith is, is suffering and they're not feeling the spirit because they're depressed, that you know something is wrong with them. All of these things uh, came up in my interviews, and so that's what I was trying to do with this book. A lot of people have written books on their own depression. Why was it important for you to share the stories of others? Because I think they're powerful. I shared my stories with other people to help them open up about their own experience. My uh, story in chapter one is very raw, and it's very authentic, and it was difficult. And as I heard from other people, I felt it was important to describe a wide range of experiences. I mean, there are chapters in the book on postpartum depression. There are chapters on um, missionaries who come home early because of mental illness issues. There are chapters on kids and teens who suffer. There's an important chapter on toxic perfectionism and how that's a contributor, especially in our culture, to depression. And stigma and what it does to feelings of the spirit are also in there as full chapters. And I also write about what you know, leaders of our church can do on the local level to kind of 
uncover this problem and treat it and help people uh, to get hope. I should mention there's also an important chapter on suicide that is a real epidemic. Um, So in each story, Laura, I heard pain and vulnerability and loneliness, but I also saw love and life and hope. Everyone can relate to something in these stories, and they can also see the redemption at the end of it. I liked it because it wasn't just Jane's story. A celebrity who fought depression, this is a problem that a lot of people suffer with. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. And you were blunt in how you talked Mm -hmm. about it. In fact, in the first few pages, I found myself flinching because you were using words that we tiptoe around. Right. Right. For example, you start out by labeling depression as mental illness. Wait, 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 wait. I might be depressed, but I'm not mentally ill. That's something, you know, crazy people do. So I can't tell you how often I heard someone say to me, I've never talked about this with anyone, or my parents don't even know this, or I can't believe I'm telling you this. I mean, after I had done, you know, many interviews, people started reaching out to me, people I didn't know, who'd heard I was working on this book and asked, can I talk to you? Can I tell you my story? Because they were so desperate to help other people and to use their experience for good. And so I think that's a very powerful and courageous thing to do. And you'll, you'll see that and read that throughout this book. In labeling depression as a mental illness, you differentiate it from what you call situational sadness. How are they different? Well, I say in the beginning of this book, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a PhD, I'm a journalist. And over 20 years, I told many stories and interviewed very interesting and influential people. This book is through the power of story explaining what depression is and what mental illness is. And so when I say I experience situational sadness, I speak from my own experience and I say that, you know, throughout my life I had dealt with difficult experiences and I had been down and I had had a good cry or two or three and I was always able to get back up. But when I was in depression, I felt like I was in a a sack, a burlap sack, and someone had tied the top of that sack, and I could not get out of it. And I couldn't understand why I was feeling so badly because I I was blessed. I mean, I had a wonderful family, and I had what I needed and wanted in my life, and yet... I couldn't get out of bed, and I was barely functional, and I cried all the time, and I was angry, and there were just you know, all the classic symptoms of depression, and I, was, and I was confused, because what is this, and why is this happening to me? I'm doing everything right in my life, right? I'm praying, and I'm reading my scriptures, and I'm going to the temple, and I'm serving in my calling, and, and yet I'm depressed. You know, when I was a little girl, I'd always been taught, you know, if you're doing what's right and you're following the commandments and you're, you're serving and you're praying and you're doing all the right things, then you're happy. And if you're sad or not social or whatever else, then you must be doing something wrong and you need to repent. So for me, depression was very real and it was a tunnel vision of sorts, you know, sort of a, a collapsing of possibility. And that's very hard to get out of. In fact, it's impossible to get out of without professional help. Why was it important to destigmatize the use of the term mental illness? Stigma and shame 
lead to isolation and silence. Stigma and shame lead to isolation and silence. And that aggravates depression and most importantly, cuts off important sources of support and treatment. That's why talking about it is so important. I think mental health specialists and some organizations have made progress over the years trying to reduce the stigma attached to mental illness, but stigma is still the main reason that individuals and families do not reach out in times of crisis, and we have to change that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went about conducting your research? Yes, yeah, so it's a journalist's uh, experience. <laughs> I mean, my whole life as a journalist at CBS and ABC News, and now I fill in on a national public radio program produced out of Boston. I, you know, I had told stories, and people always ask me, "What were the favorite interviews that you did?" And I think they were expecting me to say a president or a Hollywood star, or you know, somebody famous. And was it Martha Stewart? You know. My favorite interviews were always those of people who had done something extraordinary who were not in the public eye, people who were just normal folks who'd made good choices, who had used their talents and experiences, difficult as they may be, for good. So those are the people that I reached out to, and I, as I was thinking about this book and the stories that are in it, I realized that that's what I've dipped into, to tell the stories of people who don't have a platform people who don't have the ability to share what they've been through. And I'm honored that they would trust me enough to tell their stories. Depression as a discrete mental illness is difficult to describe. Why do you think that is so? Why is it difficult to describe? Yes. Because people don't know what's happening to them. I think so often in my interviews, that's why people would use the words choking and sinking and suffocating. You know, I mean, I remember one uh, psychologist said, depression is a ball and chain. Some people drag it, some people swing it. I love that. And that brings up the point that you made in the book that so many people who have depression have very different experiences. Right. And so right. saying this and this and this and this will happen, right. it's like WebMD with the side effects. It's the whole list of everything. Right. Certainly symptoms vary. Uh, you know, some people don't cry. They're not terribly sad. Uh, they're blank or numb. Others still present with anger or rage. So it's a, it's a variety. And so it's difficult to describe because I also think it's scary. I mean, I, when I was in my depression, I didn't really know what was happening to me. And I was worried that I would never be my old self again. And to admit that is a really hard thing to do. Did you interview people outside the Latter-day Saint tradition? No. No. Every interview I conducted, I wanted this book to be from a perspective of faith. And I thought that there were, there were issues specific to Latter-day Saints that I wanted to address head-on. So I only interviewed members of the church for my book. Did you find any symptoms that were specific to Latter-day Saints having to do with depression? I certainly saw themes that emerged. Um, there were two themes that emerged. The first was the stigma attached, not only to a mental health diagnosis, but to the medication prescribed and even to the therapy required for treatment. I also saw 
uh, embarrassment and shame attached to the byproducts of depression. You know, you miss a semester of school or you're out of step socially or employment-wise because of your illness. And the other thing I noticed was that many people blamed themselves, that they must have done something to cause this, that they must have done something, this was their fault. So that was the first theme. And the second theme was this inability to feel the spirit that was very prevalent in every interview that I did. And disconcerting for the people Disconcerting. That's right. Because often, you know, people would say, well, if I just pray more, or if I just serve more, this will go away. And then when they kept doing those things that they, and don't get me wrong here, please, prayer and, and temple attendance and scripture reading are essential for life. They're the most important things we can do. But would you sit in the corner and pray your heart disease away? No, you would pray and you would go to the cardiologist. Uh, You know, when you have diabetes, you take your insulin. When you break your arm, you get a cast. I mean, depression is a physical condition that requires treatment. And so I think that's a really important point to hit home, especially with our LDS audience. I think that's an interesting point that you've made because as I've become more open and talked about medication that I take... I see this shame melt away from whomever I'm speaking to, and they say, I take medication as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And just that, you know, talking about it openly and normalizing it has such a healing effect. That's right. You know, there's one story that reminds me um, in the book of a woman um, many years ago as a college student finally went to the campus health center because she was having these terrible symptoms. She couldn't get out of bed. She was exhausted all the time. She was irritable. She couldn't concentrate. And she was having symptoms of panic, you know, heart palpitations and shortness of breath. And she didn't know what was happening to her. And she went to the health center and she was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And she was given a comprehensive treatment plan. She was prescribed some medication. She went home to her apartment and she threw that medication right down the the toilet she was so embarrassed and thought that she had done something wrong. And she thought furthermore that she could will herself out of this, that she could make this go away on her own. And what I like about Lori's story is the evolution of her thinking. She had many difficult years after that. She married, she had two children, and she, for the most part, kept her, her symptoms hidden. You know, they would ebb and flow, and, and she would be grateful when they weren't there, but boy, she suffered in silence when they came back like a raging river. And then finally, after her third child was born, she told her doctor, I was diagnosed with this, and I'm still suffering. And finally, she got treatment. And finally, she felt better. And this woman now is the biggest stigma buster I've ever seen. (laughs) She will talk with anyone. She talks openly and honestly about depression and mental illness and talks about best practices. This is what I do. I treat this as a chronic illness, which of course it is. And I get sleep and I eat well and I exercise and I take my medication and cognitive skills that have helped me, here they are. And because she's done that, because she's been so open, she has helped many, many people and kids in her seminary class who've come to her. 
kids who have come home from their mission early with mental illness, whom she has helped because of that ability to, to be vulnerable and to tell her story. That's what I hope people do when they read this book, that they'll see the value in being authentic and reaching out with their own experiences to help somebody else. I think it's important to note that this shaming doesn't come necessarily on the peer level. Sometimes it comes from those closest to us. Someone very dear to me was on medication and it changed her life. And I spoke to her and she said, no, I've gone off because my husband doesn't want me to be on it. And Mm -hmm. I felt so sad for her Mm -hmm. because it was so helpful for her and she couldn't feel like a good person while she was taking it. I think that's such an excellent point. And I think there is someone in all of our lives or maybe multiple people in our lives who don't want us to be open, who don't want us to get treatment, who feel that stigma even maybe more powerfully than we do ourselves. And so, again, awareness, openness, authenticity. Let's be real and stop the taboo. Remove the stigma. Let's bust this out, right? And be open and honest so we can stop the suffering or at least help people understand that there is healing and there is hope. I like the point that you made that medication is not necessarily a happy pill, but it provides traction Correct. as you're trying to get footing, trying to grab that rope, pull yourself out. Do you mind sharing a couple of examples of where medication provided that traction? Thank you for bringing that up. I think it's an important point because I think there are a lot of people who think, oh, that's that, that pill is the panacea. And once I take that, I'll be... I'll be good. It doesn't work that way. And again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to prescribe uh, treatment options uh, for anyone. But from my own experience, when I was in the depths of my depression, I felt like I was at the top of a very steep flight of stairs, and I was at the very top step. And if I took one more step, I would fall careening down into a dark pit and I felt stuck. And as I got treatment and as I went to therapy, it felt like that medication, which by the way, I didn't want to take because again, I thought I should be able to overcome this myself. That medication helped me get to that next step. It helped me take that next step to that next flight of stairs that was over that dark divide. And I was able to get to that step and move forward with the treatment that I needed that was going to help me. So it was, a, it was a bridge for me. I wasn't on that medication forever, and some people are, and that's okay too. But for me, it was a bridge to get the help that I needed to change my, my patterns of thinking, the wiring in my brain, whatever was going on up there. It just shifted it, and it made me realize what was happening and what I needed to do to, to get help. It's also interesting to note that medication for depression or anxiety, which you also cover in this book, is not instant. It's not like Tylenol. Within six or eight hours, you'll know if it has worked. You mentioned diabetes. I have two children who have diabetes. Insulin, within two hours, I know how effective it's been. Sometimes it takes months or years to find the correct medication. And even if you start out with the correct medication, 
it'll take a month to start taking effect, which is one of the horrible things about this disease. If you've ever had someone close to you suffering, you want them to be fixed really quickly because you see the pain that they have. Right. And I, you know, I interviewed a a mom who said this very thing. She had a 14-year-old daughter who was collapsing. I mean, just before her eyes, a bright light that all of a sudden was not going to school, a formerly straight-A student who wasn't passing her classes, wanted to sleep all the time. I mean, she was in a very deep clinical depression. And she said, I was just hoping that I could snap my fingers and I could give her that medication and we'd just all be better. Well, no, (laughs) it didn't work that way. And this child was in treatment facilities and missed a year of school. And it was a long haul after several tries of different medication. They finally found one. I think it was a combination that worked for her. But it's trial and error. And this is a hidden you know, problem. It's a hidden disease. You can't see it. It's not like you can take an x-ray of your arm when you have a broken arm. You see the bone that's broken and how to fix it and set it and make it right. I had one woman tell me, I wish I could wear a cast on my head because something's wrong in there and that's hard for people to understand. But there is, again, there is hope and there is help. So we've mentioned that it's not, medication is not a quick bandage and it may provide traction, but usually you need something else to help you over the bump while the medication is starting Mm -hmm. to work, while you're getting therapy. Can you share stories about people who have found other things, other spiritual helps Mm -hmm. during this process. Absolutely. I think it's different for everyone. And, um, you know, there's not one thing that works for everyone. I remember speaking with one woman who said that in her depression, she was a professor at a university. And I remember her saying to me, you know, I'd show up at my class, um, having not been able to get out of bed for a couple of days. And, you know, I'd, I'd put on a smile and I'd teach my class. And she said, those students would have just been, they wouldn't have believed it had they had known what was happening with, to me behind the scenes. She said, she told me that in her depression, she would write down memories of when she had been well, memories of when she her, her life was good, quote unquote. And she also wrote down memories of when she had been able to feel the spirit because in her depression, she felt like her prayers were hitting the ceiling. That was one example of writing down and remembering in that way what you were like before, (laughs) before this all happened. I also met with a stake president who was meeting with a young woman who was a student at an institute, and she was so dark and sad, and, you know, she was she felt guilty because she couldn't feel the spirit. And this stake president stopped her in the middle of the conversation. He said, do you often feel like God doesn't love you? Do you often feel like you can't feel God's love? And she looked at him with tears in her eyes and she said, yes. And that was all he needed to tell his story of how as a stake president, he had felt the same thing, that he had felt like he was alone, that he couldn't feel God's love. So story sharing, writing down remembrances. I think there's room for service in here, but but after traction has been um, created with medication and other therapies, I think for so long we heard, well, if you just serve more, <laughs> you'll feel better. And certainly service is important and valuable and meaningful and helpful, but it's unhelpful to tell someone who's depressed to go serve more 
when you have traction through other methods, service is certainly helpful. And I think the last thing I would say is hearing the affirmation of others in times of crisis is very healing. Um, one woman told me that having a priesthood blessing and actually audibly hearing how God loved her, audibly hearing the comforting words of a priesthood blessing were beneficial for her. So those are just a few things that I heard from my interviews. You talk about toxic perfectionism and how it contributes to, I, I call it a pandemic mm -hmm. of general anxiety disorder found in our current culture. Mm -hmm. So I'm a recovering perfectionist myself. <laughs> So it wasn't surprising to me that I heard from many women, especially, who mentioned the appearance of themselves, their children, the way they taught a lesson in church, how clean their house was, as a way to say, you know, I have this facade up and I can't let it down because if I somehow reveal that I'm less than perfect, then people will think less of me somehow, right? I mean, this toxic perfectionism is absolutely an epidemic. And I think in our culture especially, that's one thing, which, which is why I devoted one entire chapter to toxic perfectionism. I read a study, the American Psychological Association actually published a study about this and reported that the link between perfectionism and suicide is stronger than we have believed and distressingly under-recognized. So this study says that toxic perfectionism fuels feelings of inadequacy and, and most importantly makes us feel non-authentic. And that is a contributor to depression. You include a really interesting discussion about a not good enough cycle. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that for us? When we feel like we're not good enough, we feel like we can't be our authentic self, that our offering is not enough, then that sends us into a place where, where you feel like anything I do is not going to be good enough and I must be a bad person and therefore I'm doomed. It's like one step leads to the next, which leads you down this dark black pit. Let me tell you a story that I share in the book. We took our, one of our children to a class to help that child deal with anxiety. And I'll never forget the exercise that the psychologist had us do that this one day. She brought in a load of boxes on a cart and she brought in next to those boxes some magazines and some scissors and some tape. And over the course of the next hour, our job was to work together, my child and I, to put together pictures, to cut out pictures that on the front of the box represent who we are how we present ourselves to everyone, who we want, what we want our image to be. And then on the inside of the box, we're supposed to tape pictures from all those magazines of who we are when nobody's watching. When nobody else is around, who are you really? So we did that, and at the end of the hour was a very powerful lesson. There it was, in that box. And the psychologist told us that the lesson is that the more the outside of the box matches the inside of the box, the healthier your mental state, the healthier you are mentally and emotionally. Because you're not trying to put on a show. You're not trying to be on inauthentic. You are who you are, and that's good enough. So I keep that box by my bedside now as a visual reminder of how dangerous, damaging, and potentially deadly toxic perfectionism is. And the key to that phrase is toxic. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be particular. Absolutely. 
We but should all have high standards. Exactly. Yeah. But um, And it's okay to uh, desire to improve yourself and to have things exact and clean. Mm-hmm. It's when it takes over your life and makes you feel bad about yourself. Well, toxic perfectionism is contrary to the gospel principle of perfection in Christ, right? It's not just emotionally unhealthy. It's spiritually unhealthy. We take that verse in Matthew chapter 5, be therefore perfect, and we put it on steroids. (laughs) This is not what the Savior intended, this toxic perfectionism that is creeping into our culture, which by the way is fueled by social media. We go on our social media feed and there's all the perfect, happy, uh, shining moments of glory in everybody's life, the perfect vacation, the perfectly addressed child. You know, I mean, it just goes on and on, right? And we see that and we think, oh, I'm not good enough. I got to be better. I got to be like that. You know, it's a real problem. And we see that in our teenagers now, Generation Z. I'm so glad you brought that up. This is an important chapter in the book on kids and teens who suffer. 20% of teenagers experience depression at some point before they reach adulthood. 20%. And depression increases a teenager's risk of attempting suicide by 12 times. So those are important numbers. Those, those numbers should get our attention. And, you know, it, it is important to note that depression in teenagers can look very different from depression in adults. It's hard to distinguish between what is teenage angst, right, and depression, oh, exactly. right? That's Irritable, I... angry, you know, it's unexplained outbursts and aches and pains and we becoming withdrawn. It's confusing, right? But depressed teenagers have this intense feeling of worthlessness, which makes them very vulnerable and sensitive, and especially sensitive to suicide. So we we need to pay attention. You spoke with John Robison, who served as mission president in Lubbock, Texas, USA. What did he tell you about the experiences of his depressed missionaries? So I have a whole chapter on missionaries and, and depression and mental illness and missionaries who come home early from their missions because of mental illness. So I talked to President Robison, and I talked to several others, and they all had really excellent takeaways on the problem. I remember President Robison specifically. He had been told by President Eyring when he was set apart, called to be the president uh, of the Texas Lubbock Mission. He said, President Eyring told him, I want you to find a way to make every missionary successful. And President Robison gained a reputation as a mission president who was eager to help those missionaries with depression and anxiety. And he did everything he could. He took missionaries from other missions who'd been sent home, took them into his mission, and helped them try to be successful by not being so rigid with the rules, not changing the rules, but helping these kids, accommodating them and helping them to find ways to serve, to find ways to share the gospel in ways that were meaningful, but also in ways that they could actually accomplish, you know? So he was a wonderful example of that. What are some common sources of depression for our missionaries? So from what I heard, uh, the pressure to, to be successful is a big one, which is important. We all want to be successful, but taking it to an unhealthy degree. I interviewed President Kevin Calderwood, who was a former president of the New York, New York South Mission. And he, he said something very interesting. He said, mission, missions are really hard, and missionaries have this perception of what they think they, a mission will be before they leave. 
you know, they think that they're going to be on this spiritual high. They're going to be amming the day they get into the mission field. They're going to run, you know, people are going to run to the font when they start testifying and they get out into the field and people start rejecting them and they have to get up at 6.30 in the morning and study and stay focused and it's hard. And they're thinking for themselves for the first time and they're maybe lonely. Sometimes uh, they are struggling. You know, there are a lot of contributors to this, but I, I think like any other form of depression, it's something to be very aware of. 34% of missionaries who come home, according to one study by uh, Dr. Chris Doty-Yells at Utah Valley University, 34% had a physical illness or injury, but 36% had mental health concerns when they were sent home from their missions. So it's real prevalent. In your interviews, did you come up with any ideas that we can use to help reduce mm. the stigma for missionaries that come home early because of depression Good question. in our wider congregations mm -hmm. or in our families? Yeah. So there's one example in the book that I really like, a mother whose son came home from his mission early. And this was a very difficult situation, but she decided that she was going to send out an email to members of the ward, to her family, to anyone who knew her son. She was going to send out an email and she was going to explain what had happened. And she was going to say that, you know, well, here is what she said. She said, dear friends, we want to let you know that Max will be returning home today from his mission to receive treatment. He will be receiving a medical missionary release. He is suffering from a deep depression that none of us, including mission leaders, knew about. And then she goes on to talk a little bit. But at the end, she says, and I love this, while we respect Max's privacy, we also want you to know that our door is open to visit, to discuss, to better understand. Please don't worry about how to interact with him or us. Just go for it. I love that because she just eliminated the stigma, right? She, she was very open about it. Our son is coming home. This is the reason. And please come over. Essentially, she's pleading there, show him some love. Welcome him home. He's had this struggle. And what was so interesting, she went on to tell us in the next paragraph, you know, we talk about how on Max's first Sunday back to church, a high councilman felt inspired to talk about his own early release from his mission. And he shared that experience with the ward. And there's Max listening to this on his first Sunday back, watching this faithful, wonderful, happy man share that that had been part of his life experience. And here he is standing to tell about it without any embarrassment, without any stigma. And so because Max's family was so open, because they were willing to be vulnerable and share this experience, Max didn't have to worry about the stigma. All Max had to do was worry about getting better. And I love that example. I love it too. You call attention to the fact that there's a societal epidemic of suicide. Can you share some of your research with us? Because you had some great statistics. So I think the numbers, they're distressing, uh, but the numbers speak for themselves, certainly. Uh, there's been a 28% increase in the suicide rate in the United States over the last 20 years. Um, the World Health Organization reports that suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages 15 to 29. And in Utah, the Department of Health reports that one in four teenagers say they have recently seriously considered suicide, which is a, quite a grim statistic because already in Utah, suicide is the number one cause of death for young people ages 15 to 24. That is a startling statistic. 
the number one cause of death, suicide, for our young people ages 15 to 24 in the state of Utah. Our LGBTQ kids are at special risk if they are rejected by their parents. They are more than eight times more likely than non-rejected youth to attempt suicide. And they also report high levels of depression if they are rejected in their communities, but specifically by their parents. It's also important to note there's been a 70% increase in the suicide rate in the United States among girls just over the last eight years. So, I mean, you can go on and on. These numbers are heartbreaking. (laughs) And you can hear from them and see in them that this is truly a crisis. It is an epidemic. I'm sure all of us have acquaintances who have been touched by suicide or someone close to us. You mentioned in the book, within a space of a year, three people you knew committed suicide. Right. Within our family's reach, three different people took their lives. One father of a little daughter in my son's uh, class, a woman in my ward, her son took his life, and then a friend here in Utah, his son took his life within the course of 12, 13 months. We all know somebody who has made this terrible choice. Suicide is stigmatized in our culture, but before we even get to that, there's a stigma attached to suicide ideation, so much so that people who experience it kind of get scared. Mm -hmm. Like, what is happening to me? Mm -hmm. One counselor told me something extremely comforting one time, which I've shared with others. And that's that suicide thoughts are not uncommon. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked by that. Mm -hmm. She said, be happy you didn't go through with it. Now let's talk about how we can deal with those thoughts Mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. And I have shared that with others. Mm -hmm. This is part of the disease. Correct. That's exactly right. How common were suicidal thoughts mentioned, and how did they affect their victims? Well, very common. I mean, in my depression, I experienced that as well. I experienced these feelings of not wanting to be around anymore, and I didn't have a mechanism for making that happen. I just, you know, I just wanted to fall asleep and fade away. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't any more complicated than that. Um, that's depression, you know, that's depression. So I heard many stories from people who, uh, a medical doctor that I interviewed, who obviously has a unique perspective to understand depression, has lived through it for many years. Um, And when I spoke with him, had been in the depths of it for a long time. His wife told me, you know, he'll say to me, do you know that there are times I just don't want to be here anymore? And it's a real wake-up call for her. As a family, they've had to be really open about this and talk about it and say, Dad, how are you feeling today? You know, what's going on? What's going through your mind? And not just be on top of his medication and not just be on top of the doctor visits, but within their family, they have to be aware of these thoughts in his mind. Whenever there's a suicide, there's always the questions, what could have been done? Elder Brenlin has spoken on the topic of suicide. Have you come across any best practices for what we can do when we're comforting someone who's contemplating suicide? I love what Elder Renlin said. I love what he said about 
about talking with someone, about being there for someone who is struggling. Every medical professional, Laura, every medical professional I interviewed in nearly every book or article or news story I read about suicide comes to the same conclusion, and that is that any meaningful progress in suicide prevention begins with eradicating the stigma that surrounds it. Talking about suicide does not prompt people to kill themselves. It just doesn't. This notion that talking to someone about their feelings may lead people to act on them has been debunked by a number of studies and by those who have attempted suicide and are now healing. So it's just, it's most important to know here that talking about suicide can actually help prevent it. And it's not to deny that many of these stories end tragically, but the possibility of healing and of hope is always there. It's going to take a conscious effort on our part to shift this paradigm. Yep. And I have an I came home one day from work and my 16-year-old was just crying and 16-year-old boys don't cry like that. I said, what happened? And he said, Matt died today. And Matt was his best friend and he had been struggling with severe depression for nine months, had been hospitalized, but had been released. And as I was comforting him, I wanted to say, well, Matt didn't die today. He took his life. This was a choice. And then I stopped myself. Instead, I said to my son, mental illness is a horrible disease. Right. That's right. We have to change the way we talk about it. Exactly right. We have to start talking about it. You know, I think it's really a mistake and potentially dangerous to hide mental illness from our children, our own diagnoses, and those of those people around us, those in our community. Because what does that say to our kids, right, about talking about these hard things? That says there's shame. That says what is the secret that you're hiding here? And it says that, you know, to them, what are they going to do if they have a problem that comes up? What are they going to do when they need help? And when does the cycle of shame and secrecy end? So being open about these things, talking about this epidemic and talking about solutions and potential causes, I think is a really important thing to do to, again, eviscerate the stigma attached to it. Exactly. A lot of us are great fakers. I know when the school bus is coming and I can get dressed really quickly. <laughs> One time in therapy, my therapist said, Cry in front of your children so they know that you can deal with hard things, but you cry. Right, right. You show them by example. We are their models. <laughs> we teach them, and they follow our lead. So let's start these conversations. Let's have these conversations, even the hard ones. One of your interviews, you mentioned it was one of the more difficult ones, was with your <sighs> husband about how it was to live with a depressed person. <laughs> Yeah. Having a depressed person in my household, I can tell you it's extremely stressful. Mm -hmm. What are some tools you found to be helpful so to I, yeah. ease that burden? I wanted to write a chapter specifically about what it's like from the outside looking in. What's it like for someone to live with that person who's depressed, who doesn't understand it themselves, who's, who doesn't know what those feelings are, who's never had them? but who's seeing it firsthand in someone close to them. So I interviewed my husband because I thought, who better to know what that was like in that 
in that episode than he. Maybe I'll just read you a bit of it. It's, it's revelatory. I asked him, what was it like for you as my husband to go through that one really bad depressive episode? Mark says, for me, depression tapped into some of my deepest emotions, anger, hurt, frustration, sadness, fear. I felt frustrated because I wanted to fix it and unhappy because I couldn't reach you. I felt like I had done something wrong. I took it as a frontal assault. I felt like I'd let you down in some way. I just wanted it to stop. And I remember so many times thinking, why is this happening? I just want my life back. And then I say, what was it like to be in the middle of that storm? He says, to be brutally honest, my logical brain kept thinking, why can't she just snap out of this? She could get out of this if she wanted. Sometimes I thought I could talk you out of it. Remember that? Finally, I realized, oh, this is a really bad disease, and I don't understand it. And Mark goes on to say, you know, he doesn't look at our experience of depression as a negative for our family. He says, we've definitely grown because of this. So I think from the outside, looking in, depression looks a lot like selfishness, and it can feel a lot like rejection and even abandonment. But I think we have to understand again that this is... An illness, it's a physical condition. And what do you do? Someone asked me just a little while ago, an hour ago, what do we do when you're the caregiver or when you know someone or when you have a friend and they don't want help? I say, you just have to keep bumping into them with your light. You just have to keep trying. Do not distance yourself from them. Trust that just your presence in their lives makes a difference because you're full of light and love and your presence matters to them a lot. It's hard, but we gotta keep at it. Thank you. I think it's important to, we're talking about being open and to say things that describe how we're feeling. I think it's okay to say, it is hard for me to be your caregiver. It is stressful. I'm not a bad woman. I'm not a bad mom. I'm not a bad wife. If this is stressful for me, I need to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. When you're on the airplane, the flight attendant always says, right. in case of emergency, put on your air mask first and then put on your child's. Sometimes as a caregiver, maybe you need a little air mask as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're exactly right. How is depression a disease of loneliness? So I quote Andrew Solomon in the book. He's the author of the best-selling book, kind of the Bible of depression, it's called Noonday Demon. He talks about depression as a disease of loneliness. And that because of that, that love is really the essential remedy in its treatment. Not because it ameliorates the symptoms of depression, it doesn't. But because it gives people evidence that life is worth living if they can only get better. It gives them a place to admit to their illness and admit that taking the first step toward resolving it is getting treatment. We live in a time when we're becoming increasingly isolated with social media and technology and families spread out and scattered. We're lonely. We're, we're lonelier than we used to be, and that's certainly a contributor to depression as, an, as the epidemic that it is. You wrote that depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. Yes, a friend uh, that I interviewed, a young man that I didn't know before I started all this name, Seth, told me that, and I just love it. Depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. 
Think about that. Think about the possibilities of that. Think about how we could change if we just changed our mindset, what that would mean for the people that are struggling, who are who are suffering in silence, if we had more empathy, if we had more compassion, if we had more understanding, if we understood the facts, if we understood the symptoms of this disease and actually treated it as the disease that it is, the physical disease that it is. Think about what could change. We wouldn't blame people for having depression. Can you imagine if we blame someone for having cancer? Never. We would you, never do that. If you just tried hard enough. If you enough. just try harder to get that tumor out of your liver, yeah, you'll get better. We would never do that. The same principle applies. We have to do the same thing when it comes to depression and mental illness. Empathy, empathy, empathy. Get rid of the secrecy. Get rid of the stigma and have empathy and understanding. I love that. A friend talked to me the other day. And she was suffering from depression. And she said, I went to my ecclesiastical leader. And she said to go to a professional. I'm so broken. I have to go to a professional. No. I told her, that's what the church is telling people now. This is a disease. We don't treat cancer with a a bishopric interview. And we don't treat depression we can get some empathy there, right. but we really need to seek a professional. Yeah, and I think sometimes we expect too much of our bishops and oh, our exactly. priesthood leaders. They're not counselors. They're not professionals. There are advocates. There are advocates with the Savior, but they're not there to medically treat us. Um, they're there to help us and encourage us, but you know, we, we have to take steps on our own and follow their advice when, when they say, you know, need to see a professional. Thank you, Jane, for doing this research, writing this book, and visiting with us today. Well, thank you. I I appreciate your interest, and I would just say, you know, I never thought I would say this, but I am grateful for the journey of depression because what it has taught me and the people that I've met along the way who have shared their stories with me, I'll never forget them, and I hope that they help a lot of people understand this terrible disease better. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.